Welcome back to the show that tells you, you are a quantum computer with free will, learning to express itself in an ever-changing physical world. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 19 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In today's episode, we'll be discussing quantum linguistics, the challenges that a quantum mind faces when forced to express itself with digital information. By the end of today's episode, we'll ask the question, could we transition towards a manner of speaking that more honestly portrays the inner workings of our mind? This episode is available on YouTube, and an audio-only version is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you hear today, then please like this video, subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and hop for metaphysical news. See how concepts become objects and then become quantum. Hey there, I'm Justin Riddle. I got a PhD in psychology at UC Berkeley, and while there, I taught a course on quantum consciousness. And this course was taught for seven years, and this podcast is really a translation and update of that material for a broader audience. In my day job, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and I deliver electric and magnetic stimulation to humans in order to better understand the neural basis of cognition and to develop novel therapeutics for psychiatric illness. So, all right, today's episode, we'll be talking about quantum linguistics. And really, this is brought about by the fact that we really do live in a quantum universe but for ages, we've been conditioned into thinking that we live in a purely physical universe. And so an essential part of life is communication and how much of our way of communicating with each other and our assumptions about language itself are grounded in this model of a physical world. So when we update our model of self to be a quantum computer or additional forms of computation beyond just that physical digital world, what does that change about language and how we use language to communicate with each other? In the next episode, I'll talk about language at a more metaphysical, ontological level, you know, what is language fundamentally, but today I'll be focused on communication between individuals and how we use language, some of the pitfalls, some of the challenges in, in communicating with language, and how these really should be updated to fit with this newer quantum perspective on reality. So, all right, I'm going to start off at the most basic level, which is this idea that if we live in a physical world, then everything can be described physically, and so the concept of a definition comes very naturally and cleanly from a physical world, right? Any sort of thing or object that you encounter, any sort of thought or feeling should be describable in a very precise manner if we assume that we live in a purely physical universe obeying physical laws. And so similar to digital information is sort of this physical aspect of reality our language within this physical world should be built to very explicitly spell out and draw out what we're talking about. 
right? And so how this plays out is that when you talk to people about abstract concepts like consciousness, people often say, oh, well, the first thing we need to do is define what we mean by consciousness. And so I'm going to argue to you today that this is really sort of a, a physicalist, dogmatic belief that we need to define everything that we're talking about. And sure, we need to get a better understanding of what we're talking about in communication. There needs to be sort of a, a shared language or a shared sense of what our words mean. However, when we go about defining consciousness, this is a fundamentally hard problem. And you're probably not going to find a good definition. And it often takes the form that one person is this physicalist. And so they're going to take the, the perspective of trying to cut down any sort of model or theory that's being presented. And then there's this consciousness enthusiast who's passionate about, you know, what is first person subjective experience? What is the nature of our minds? And then the physicalist will say, well, please define consciousness. And then the consciousness enthusiast is left in this position of trying to, to grapple with these physical digital words that we're using and trying to take this real ineffable abstract thing, consciousness, and lock it into some physical framework of words. And what's gonna happen? You, as the consciousness enthusiast, choose a set of words to define consciousness, and then it's easy to then destroy that model, break it down, and just totally wreck that uh, theory, because you can poke holes in, in what that means. And so the argument here is that consciousness is something ineffable. It is something experienced and felt and understood. And so we all have a sense of what consciousness is. We're in it. We're experiencing it. But it's really hard to, to lock into any sort of physical definition. I think another good example is free will, right? If you have two people debating and one is on the side of defending free will and one is on the side of arguing against free will, it's really easy to say, all right, well, define free will to me. And then no matter what definition you come up with, it's probably going to be inadequate and it's easy to knock down that definition. And it's really hard to even define it, you know? So in this argumentative uh, discussion that I'm framing to you as occurring, there's this, combat, this combativeness, this uh, antagonism, and one person is forced to create this definition to basically create an entire model for what free will is, and the other person can just sit back. Once the model comes out, you can wipe out the model with some, some arguments. It's much more difficult to both sit with the concept of free will and then reflect upon free will to talk about free will and really, this is the point of the conversation initially, right, is to have a conversation about what free will is, what consciousness is. And so in defining it, you're just already having the conversation about consciousness, about free will. And so this insistence that we need to have a definition um, to me seems to be a sort of a, a fallacy around the way that we're engaging in a discussion because you're forcing this sort of physicalist framework of, of define this thing explicitly to me. And then I won't even engage with you in discussion until we have this really rigorous definition. But then the creation of that definition is the conversation you wanted to have in the first place. So it's, it's this weird, um, if you have a good faith conversation, 
you're going to have that conversation about free will, about consciousness. What is it? What does it mean? But if you're having sort of a bad faith conversation, one person is going to force the other to define something and then knock it out, right? And so I think this really brings up this concept of uh, um, taking the map as the territory itself, right? It's kind of a common expression where you have a map of what free will is, a a model of what free will is, and we don't want to mistake that model for consciousness itself. And clearly we want to build as good of a model as we can, but just because a model fails to account for consciousness doesn't mean that consciousness isn't real or that it's, you know, that it's a fallacy to even talk about consciousness. It's really that this, this, the territory and the map are distinct things. We need to always acknowledge that our words are, are digitized, they're physical, they're subject to a number of limitations inherent to the physical world. And if you engage with this theory that your mind is a quantum computer, we're living in this quantum universe, and there's a lot more going on under the hood that kind of defies these simple digital framings, then the territory of consciousness or free will is really deep. And to then get hung up with the map that we're creating to, to capture or navigate that territory um, is sort of a self-defeating process, right? So it's, you know, sort of repeating myself here, but it's, it's easy to knock out a physical map of what the mind territory is without actually engaging with the territory of what that, that mind is. All right, so that is the struggle with definitions. We need to define this. No, we don't need to define this. We need to talk about it. We don't need to sit around defining everything. <laughs> we can figure out what our words mean and where we're coming from with our, our different experiences, but let's not just spend our whole time like arguing about definitions, right? Let's have a real conversation. Um, in line with that is this I feel like it's this very modern sense of definitions. And this comes from this physicalist framing that really emerged in the, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, when we started really thinking of things in a very mechanical way. And so another fallacy that's really built into this definition is fundamentally the dictionary. The dictionary is a lie. The dictionary is a social construct. The dictionary was only invented about, I think it was the early 1900s. Before that, it was accepted that words had this fluidity to them, this meaningful association. And then to get hung up on dictionary definitions of things is quite confusing because it's an effort to, to sort of ground each other into a shared definition. But at the same time, the dictionary is a social construct and it really is subject to evolution. And so the dictionary, you'll note, the definitions actually get updated and changed. And there's a, a board um, at, at each of these major dictionaries. There's a board that sits there and they'll update the definitions of things, right? And so I would argue to you that we really need to think of the dictionary more like Wikipedia or some sort of like system of knowledge that's definitely evolving. And so we need to, you know, take with a grain of salt 
leads definitions because they're just created by other people. It's sort of this consensus reality and it's subject to all sorts of biases of who's on the panel controlling what definitions make it into the dictionary or into Wikipedia and which ones don't. And it's sort of this, this ongoing evolution and debate. And so I think from a physicalist world where, where we think that, oh, we can just go in and define everything and we'll, we'll create all of meaning from these simple definitions. And like I talked about in a previous episode, Gödel's incompleteness theorem really, you know, threw a wrench in the machine of first order logic where we tried to define all of mathematics using these simple propositional, logical, rational ways of thinking. If this, then that. This is true. This is false. If this is true, then that other thing must be false. When we really lock ourselves into this true false binary and this if this, then that framework, there's an incompleteness there that's foundational and fundamental. And it's not quite intuitive, but this is what's happening when people are insisting on these sort of strict dictionary definitions is that they're buying into this prepositional logical framework and it's inherently limited. And I think another really um, interesting example of this is when people say um, a tomato is a fruit. Right. And you've probably heard this before and people go, oh, well, actually, a tomato is a fruit. It's not even a vegetable. And so what is this debate and why are people so insistent that, oh, a tomato is definitely a fruit? This comes about from this really weird use of our language where, you know, we invented these words thinking about food. Right. And so a fruit was you know, arguably defined with respect to the the palate, to what things taste like. So you had vegetables, which were savory and fruits, which were sweet. So from a culinary arts perspective, a tomato is a vegetable because you cut up tomatoes and you put them in salads and you put them, you know, with your with your dinner entrees versus fruits you put with your dessert items, right? And so fruits are more of a dessert and vegetables are more of like a savory entree. But then we had, you know, the invention of a lot of these different scientific disciplines. And so as biology grew, they created this definition of a fruit that was based on having seeds being used by trees in a very specific form of reproduction for that tree. And so the tomato, by this strict scientific definition, has seeds within it and it meets the criteria for like a fruiting body of a tree or of a plant or of some organic, um, of, some or of some organism. And so what's hilarious here is you have sort of the natural humanistic side, you know, maybe the, the artistic side having its set of definitions. And then you have this scientific side or this scientific culture coming about, which is trying to lock in, you know, how reproduction in plants occurs. And they're at odds with each other, the culinary definition, and then the scientific organism definition are at odds. And so there's sort of this consensus that, well, the scientific biological theory definition overrides the culinary artistic definition. And in a way, you could almost argue this is some sort of like dominance that we're ascribing to the scientific side or the biological side 
over this culinary side. Some people would argue that the artistic side or the more experientially based side can generate definitions and valid definitions of things. And the historical context of the word fruit is one sort of way of understanding the meaning of the word fruit. And so it's just hilarious when we get locked into these strict definitions of things, how people start to argue and and you're just talking past each other. Like this argument is not based in anything meaningful, right? Is a tomato a fruit? Is a tomato a vegetable? Um, really, it depends on the context, right? A tomato is a vegetable if you're a cook, a chef. A tomato is a fruit if you're studying the reproduction of plants or genetics related to, to plants, right? And so there's very clear scenarios where you'd want to use one definition or another. And so to bicker and argue about a tomato is a fruit um, just just really isn't even productive at all and, and isn't really the purpose of, of us engaging in conversation with each other. So I think that is a really great example of people getting really heated over, over a very sort of silly uh, controversy, if you will. Um, all right, so this kind of comes down to this, this interesting notion of the word is. And this is accredited uh, to Robert Anton Wilson, who has this book called Quantum Psychology, which I read, which is, which is really fascinating. But let's define the word is. What is the word is? And it's one of those words that we use so frequently and we don't really, you know, introspect on what that word is really means. The word is, is some sort of assertion of um, equality or equilibrium between two different concepts or ideas. So we say this is that, right? And what is sort of the problem with this? And you can see it's really hard to not use the word is. The problem is that in doing so, we're making these strong assertions about reality, right? And an alternative would be to acknowledge that everything is contextually based. And so the world is changing, it's ever changing. We are in this meat cave of our own bodies, looking out at the world through our sensory systems. So we're subject to all these biases and illusions that can arise through our bodily organs. And so to make these strong is assertions will sometimes get you into trouble. And so Robert Anton Wilson argues that to update into being more quantum mechanical, we have these ideas like the photon is a wave, the photon is a particle. And like we know in the double slit experiment, as the photon travels through the double slit, it waves out and becomes this wave function of multiple possible paths. It travels through all these possible paths simultaneously, interfering with itself. And then when it gets measured on the far wall, it has a definite uh, location for where that measurement finds the photon. However, if you measure at the slits, you find that the photon doesn't go into this wave. It gets reduced down to a particle-like state and it becomes like a particle. So then to call the photon a wave or a particle is not really grappling with that true nature of the photon, which is that it's in some sort of dualistic uh, reality of being a wave and a particle, depending on the context. And so when we make these strong is assertions linguistically, 
we're opening ourselves up to making this strong physical assertion fallacy where we're saying the grass is green. What's the problem with saying the grass is green? Well, when did you look at the grass? Were you wearing sunglasses when you looked at the grass? Can we make the argument that the light hit your eyes in a weird angle and it actually was sort of browning grass, but you had sunglasses on, you were distracted. You make the statement the grass is green, but it might not be green. Um, it might not have even been green when you first saw it. The grass is green. Well, now three days have passed. Your statement the grass is green is no longer accurate because after those, uh, after you saw it, the gardener stopped watering that portion of grass and now it's now it's browning, right? So when you say the grass is green, it is for all intents and purposes true. However, there are better ways of saying it that are sort of self-referential to your experience. So you say, when I saw the grass, it was green. Or at the time I saw the grass and it looked green to me, right? So by acknowledging your own experience within that statement, you can in a way never be inaccurate. And so Robert Anton Wilson makes the makes kind of the bold statement that if you're constantly self-referencing your own experience, you're able to speak more honestly and you sort of avoid these strong true false assertions and you sort of dodge um, criticism based on being true or false right so in a way you're kind of hedging yourself against criticism because no one can say oh you didn't actually see it that way right so if you're constantly referencing your own thought processes People can make suggestions, hey, why don't you think about it a little bit differently, but they can never say your thought process didn't happen, right? Because you're inherently referencing your own mind, your own thoughts. So by improving the, the self-referential way that we speak, we can get closer to what's, to what's really going on. Um, and so David Bohm, who is a amazing writer and wrote this um, epic book called Wholeness and the Implicate Order, I highly recommend that, that book. He talks about how the nature of reality is a holographic movement of all things. And so all of reality is wrapped up in sort of this like meta fractal like superstructure if you focus in on one system, it's connected to its constituent parts, but it's also connected to this broader context. And so to really understand any given system, it's wrapped up in this implicate order, this sort of implicit behind the scenes network of processes. And it's like holographically related to, to the whole universe. Um, and it's also flowing through time. So it's a holographic movement of all things collectively. And so this is, according to David Bohm, the true nature of our reality. And this is this very like quantum mechanical framing of things where everything's contextual. There's a bunch of entanglement relationships where things at uh, different places in space or different places in time can influence this present moment system. And so in the holographic movement of the universe, natural language 
is very um, sort of limited and it's sort of digitizing into this single moment. It's almost like our words are measuring the world and simplifying them into a single discrete moment in space-time. And so as we speak, it's this inherently limiting, funneling process. And so we're locked into these very particular observations, these very particular measurements of what your words are, are articulating or creating. And so he argues that we should embrace what he calls the, the Rio mode. And so this is sort of a reference to declarative mode, interrogative mode, like these different sort of modes of speech that you learn about um, in early uh, elementary school. And he's basically suggesting that we create a new mode called the Rio mode. And so we're still using the English language. We're not like totally going against standard English, but he proposes a bunch of new words that have this sort of self-reflective nature to them, similar to Robert Anton's Wilson's um, cautionary tale about using the word is, here David Bohm is creating new words which are inherently reflective. So my mind sees things in this way. I order these concepts in this certain way. We're constantly talking about these fundamental operations that our mind performs on concepts and on meaningful ideas or constructs, right? So we're, I see a construct, I entertain a construct, I move and transform and shift this construct. I take two mental constructs and I blend them together and I organize the similarities between these two different constructs, right? You're not saying this is that, but you're sort of getting at what your thoughts are doing. So what I really like about this is it's kind of an inherently introspective way of speaking. I'm skeptical that this is really going to catch on and people will start using the words that David Bohm uh, proposes. Um, however, I think to, to you know speak a little more reflectively, referring to how our mind is creating the ideas that we want to talk about, that would really add, I think, a lot of clarity to conversation, right? So David Bohm says we're not really ever going to be able to articulate the holographic movement of the whole universe, but we take our physical domain words and we try to map them more explicitly into the, the mental world or into our, our mind's domain, and then our words can more accurately convey the mental processes which are what we're attempting to communicate between um, individuals. So I think this is a, a really cool take-home message right here is, can we learn to communicate where we more honestly speak about the way that we came to the observations or came to the epiphanies that we had? And then by doing so, we can more effectively convey that meaning between individuals. So. If you're trying to talk to one of your friends about some idea you had about free will, instead of saying things like, like there is free will or this is how it is, you talk about the cognitive process. What was that process by which you came to that understanding or you came to that vision of what you think um, is going on with free will, right? And so by going through those motions, we can get closer to um, approximating our own minds and we can have a more meaningful 
um, conversation with another person. So I'm going to leave you on that for today. And then next week, we'll be talking about what is language fundamentally. And I'll make the argument that linguistics and language is not a luxury science only for humans who have, you know, what we consider language. But language might be a fundamental field of study for understanding the nature of reality, not just a luxury, but core to what reality truly is. So more on that next week, and I'll talk to you then.